Black Hole Stone Sack with Abigail Frost. Welcome back to the Cosmic Companion. This week we're going to talk about why black holes don't suck as we discuss these bizarre features of space. We'll talk about different types of black holes, explore the history of under of our understanding of these objects, and glance at some of the great questions astronomers have today about black holes. Later on in the show, we're going to be talking with astronomer and astrophysicist Dr. Abigail Frost about her work finding that the nearest black hole to Earth isn't a black hole after all. Uh, black holes are among the strangest objects ever postulated in the annals of science. Uh, now, the velocity anything needs to escape from the gravitational well of a planet or star is called, not surprisingly, the escape velocity. Now, if an object shrinks while retaining its mass, the escape velocity goes up. In the most extreme cases, the escape velocity from an object can exceed that of the speed of light. At this point, nothing not even light or other forms of electromagnetic radiation can escape its grasp. The earliest ideas of black holes stems back to the 1780s, as the American Revolution came to a close, an English rector named John Mitchell first envisioned the idea of an object so dense that not even light could escape far from its surface. The ideas of Mitchell were far ahead of his time, encompassing ideas beyond his world. Naturally, he was rewarded with gifts and fame and accolades. No, no, I'm kidding. He died in quite obscurity and his ideas were ignored for almost two centuries. Now, in 1916, the year after Albert Einstein published his general theory of relativity, physicist Carl Schwarzschild uh, developed these ideas into a concise mathematical model of black holes. Cygnus X1, a black hole seen in the constellation of Cygnus the Swan, was first spotted in 1964. This discovery provided astronomers their first physical glimpse of a black hole and also inspired a little over 10 minutes of passable music from Rush. Now, there are four major types of black holes. Uh, the first of these are stellar mass black holes. These are remnants of massive stars which collapse following their deaths. The second are supermassive black holes. These, as the name suggests, are <clears throat> supermassive. These behemoths are found at the core of nearly every galaxy. The supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, Sagittarius A star, or just Sag A star, is four million times as massive as our sun. Larger than stellar mass black holes, yet smaller than supermassive black holes, follow me, this is where it gets tricky, are intermediate mass black holes. Their masses between a hundred and a thousand times that of the sun pose a unique challenge for astronomers. 
They are too large to have formed from stars and too small to be similar to those in the core of galaxies. They may be created from the mergers of smaller black holes or from hungry, hungry black holes gobbling up vast amounts of material from the space in which they reside. Looking deep into the universe, we see backwards in time. And the oldest light in the universe holds secrets to how everything around us will, one day, end. Meanwhile, stars, planets, and galaxies dance in an intricate ballet, occasionally giving birth to life. We are a fledgling species, just beginning to visit other worlds. We are a way for the universe to understand itself. The Cosmic Companion strives to bring the universe down to Earth, and we depend on your help to make it happen. For information on subscriptions and ways to donate to this program, please visit thecosmiccompanion.net. Thank you. Finally, in 1971, Stephen Hawking introduced the idea of the smallest, and I suspect the cutest, of these bizarre objects, miniature black holes. In 2020, astronomers announced the discovery of what they believe to be the closest black hole ever found to Earth, a stellar mass object a little over a thousand light years away in the HR 6819 system. However, a new investigation reveals this system is not likely to be a black hole after all. We talk with Dr. Abigail Frost, astrophysicist at KU Leuven, who helped make this fascinating discovery. This week on The Cosmic Companion, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Abigail Frost. She is an astronomer and astrophysicist at KU Leuven in Belgium, and she recently helped discover that the Earth's closest black hole isn't a black hole after all. Welcome to the show, Abigail. Hi, uh, thanks very much for having me. Yeah. So for those of us, for those people who may have only heard the term, but uh, what is a black hole and what is it about them that makes them so darn fascinating? So I think one of the coolest things about black holes, and I think the thing that the reason that we're still studying them and the reason why they're still such like an enigma is because um, they're extremely difficult to find. And that's why the original study, which thought it found the closest stellar black hole to Earth, was really exciting. And the reason they're difficult to find is because black holes are these super, super, super dense objects and the densest objects in the universe. And they're so, the gravitational pull um, is so strong that even light can't escape them. And that's why they appear black. That's why we call them black holes. And because um, they don't emit any light, um, this makes them very difficult to find. Um, and that's why we're constantly on the hunt for these uh, black holes to learn more about them. And of course, you know, they've entered the popular culture um you know to such an extent so many movies including a really terrible one that was put out about 1980 or so maximilian the robot still gives me nightmares <laughs> what is it about black holes you think that fascinates the general public so much i think um the kind of power of black holes is a big draw, especially there's different sizes of black holes. And so you have these supermassive black holes, which are at the center of galaxies. These are the kind of black holes that we think about um, 
perhaps that are best represented, at least visually, in films like Interstellar or things like this. Um, but then you also have stellar mass particles, which basically are just the kind of the end phase of really big stars. And they just have thrown out all the material in a violent explosion. And what's left is a super dense remnant, which is the black hole. And they can orbit um, other stars in little systems as well. And they're a lot more um, uh, essentially just kind of dark, uh, very strong stars. Um, so it's kind of different um, spectrum of these kinds of objects. But the fact that we don't know much about them. We don't know what's on the other side of a black hole. We don't know what happens when you go into a black hole, um, if you're talking about the supermassive black holes. And then we also just don't know where many of the stellar mass black holes are. There's loads of open questions. And um, potentially when you have something which is kind of exerting one of the strongest gravitational pulls um, in the universe, it's really, um, they can have a lot of influence, they can have a lot of effect. And so I think they're kind of like a bit scary because you don't know everything about them, but they're also just, um, yeah, they're really interesting, really cool. Um, so I think that's why a lot of scientists want to study them and also why they capture the imagination of like um, people who don't work in science as well. And um, so in the year 2020, some astronomers reported finding what they thought was a black hole in the HR 6819 system uh, and about a thousand light years from Earth. So what is it, first of all, that made them think that? What what, what, what signs made it look like it might be a black hole? Yeah, so the system that they were looking at is really quite interesting. Um, when we are observing stars, they give us different kinds of signals that we can look at. And one kind of signal we can use to study stars or stellar systems is something called a spectrum. It's essentially just kind of an emission signature of light coming from your star. Um, however, if you have a few stars in your system, then all of the information about all those stars is put in that one signal. And so we have to try and separate that out to work out what exactly or what stars are in there. And essentially, the signal we got from HR 68119 looks a bit weird, generally. It doesn't look like just, you know, one star or even a couple of stars that we understand. And essentially, the original group of people thought that they could see like the evidence of an unseen companion affecting this signal and making it look weird. And an unseen companion that could do that would be a stellar mass black hole. And so that's why uh, they thought there could be the nearest black hole to Earth in the system. And so, as Douglas Adams said in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, space is big. <laughs> there are a lot of stars out there and a lot of galaxies. What, what, what attracted you to look at this one particular object? So um, the reason that our group started looking at it is because its signals look quite weird. We have a kind of a history in the group of finding systems with these irregular signals and trying to work out exactly what's going on. And, um, you know, we have a, you know, as you say, place is big and there's a lot of different stars in it. Um, we have a generally quite a good idea of how most of them behave. So whenever we see something strange, we want to kind of work out why exactly strange. And this system was one of these strange systems. It showed some irregular signatures. And we thought, this looks interesting. This is cool. And it reminded us of other systems that we studied in the past, which proved out to have like very cool things happening in them. And that's why we wanted to look at this one in particular. And what did you see when you looked there? What did you find? So uh, essentially, when we heard about the uh, black hole paper, um, we were like, oh, OK, that's interesting. And we had a look. And the good thing about astronomy is that, you know, everyone can check each other's work because there's been a lot of work to go into creating these archives where we can store all the data that we get from space. And um, that meant that we could originally, um, also in 2020, just after that paper came out, we were able to look at the data that they used to have a look and see 
what we thought was going on. And we found that, you know, by looking at particular uh, what we call emission lines or particular um, sections of light coming from uh, the star within that data that were different to the ones that they originally looked at, we could find that, you know, you could actually uh, come up with a, a different auto interpretation to the system. It didn't have to have a black hole necessarily. It could just be two very exotic stars which had interacted and therefore changed um, the way they behave and the way their emission uh, looks, the way their light signals look. And so we thought, okay, well, okay, so now we have two scenarios, right? We have this one uh, where you have a black hole and you have one where you have no black hole and it's just a binary system. Um, and so essentially um, we decided to try and follow that up and kind of decide between the two by getting new data. And that's essentially what the, uh, and this new data basically allowed us to then definitively choose and find out, okay, we don't think there is a black hole in the system. And so if this, if this weird signal, as you say, uh, could likely be explained by a weird binary system, what's, what's going on in that system that makes it so bizarre? Yeah, so essentially what we think happened is that uh, there were two stars in the system who were fairly normal. Um, they were what we call B stars, which are kind of like the second most massive, second hottest kind of stars that we see in space. Um, and they were just, you know, basically going around in this cosmic dance around each other under the force of gravity. However, um, stars go through different you know, evolutionary phases and they can go through different sizes and shapes. And we think that what's happened is that one of these stars has swelled as all stars do when they get a bit older and they swell into what we call a giant. And when this happened, it got close enough to the other star that that other star was able to steal material from it and rip it off its surface. And that kind of interaction, um, we think, spun up uh, the star that did the stealing and stripped the star that was stolen from, made kind of like a, like a vampire sucking like the material off the other star. And um, essentially that has caused uh, the star that took the mass to look a bit strange because it's now rotating really fast and it has a disk of material surrounding it because all the kind of momentum that has been gained through that interaction. And the other one looks different as well because it no longer looks like a normal star, it looks like the core of a star. And so that um, is why this kind of, the, the light signals we were getting looked different and could be interpreted in so many ways because all of these objects that could be involved were very, very uh, kind of exotic, if you like, a bit, a bit strange. And so this uh, stellar vampirism, is it known these vampire stars, sorry, vampire stars. <laughs> How common are they? What, I mean, there's a lot of binary stars out there. What, what, yes. what turns an ordinary binary system into a vampire system? Yeah, so um, we think theoretically from uh, just modeling and uh, theoretical work that, yeah, as you say, a lot of these stars should be able to go through these vampiristic phases. Like there should be a lot more of this vampirism happening. The only issue is that uh, this phase compared to the entire lifetime of these stars is very short. I mean, not compared to us, it's still, you know, millions of years compared to us, but like, for a star, that's not that long. And so essentially um, the likelihood of us catching it is quite small. Um, so we predict that, um, especially for massive stars, um, uh, ones that will go supernova, ones that will form black holes, neutron stars, uh, we expect this uh, merging to be quite common. Um, or not sorry that's merging, but this interaction to be quite common. Um, but for, um, but yeah, it's just catching it. It's the trick. And that's why this particular example is quite exciting because it looks like we've just, uh, we're looking at a system that's just gone through this interaction, which is really difficult. 
uh, to cash, which is why it's quite cool. So cool. So what, how did you find it? What, I mean, what, what, did, what instruments, I know you use the VLT. Can you talk a little bit about what made that such a great instrument to study this system? Yes, yeah, so um, basically the data we originally had uh, that, you know, came up with the black hole result, that was, as I called, said before, is like a spectrum. Um, and that's one kind of observations that we can use to look at these stars. But we get no information on the individual stars, like where they are, how many of them are. We have to infer that from that kind of big mess of light that we get. Um, and so I think... Basically, what we wanted from these observations and why we needed the uh, the VLT um, and also the uh, uh, the VLTI, which is kind of like the uh, radar telescope spectrometer, is um, because we needed to get a direct look at these stars, at least be able to work out how many are there and where they are, because that kind of helped us decide between the three scenarios. So there are two instruments of the VLT that we use. The first is gravity, and this is what we call interferometer. So essentially, um, you're able to probe very small scales by observing simultaneously with different telescopes that are far apart. And in this way, you can kind of mimic like a very, very big telescope and resolve smaller details than you could with just one, uh, which is good. And so that allowed us to probe the close regions. And then we also used kind of an imaging technique where we were able to put the wider field as well. And then we were able to work out exactly where the stars were on different scales and then work out how many there were and confirm that it was a binary. Um, and uh, one of these stars also uh, had this disk that is indicative that's been through this interaction. So, yeah. And so what sort of future instruments are coming online now that can help us find black holes around the galaxy? And, uh, and might there be any that are closer to us than we thought? Yeah, there are huge um, uh, surveys ongoing, um, particularly the uh, someone I actually work with uh, in my group, a PhD student, uh, Sukhan Janssen, she is currently trying to do a big search for these uh, stellar black holes uh, that we, well, that was originally proposed to be in the system, but wasn't in the end. And that's using a telescope called Gaia, which is a space telescope doing a survey of billions of stars in the galaxy. And she's essentially looking for um, how other stars are moving, um, which could be around these black holes and trying to work out, okay, can we find specific signatures which will help us find as many of these stellar uh, mass black holes as possible? Also, um, we can also uh, uh, look to kind of upgrade to existing telescopes as well. The DLT has got a bunch of new instruments coming online, which or updates to existing instruments coming online, which are really going to help us push to uh, greater sensitivity and again to see if we can um, detect the kind of uh, signals of more exotic objects um, like the system. So. Yeah, it's an exciting time. In the next 10 years, lots of cool stuff is going to be happening. So. Great. And finally, what's what's next for you? What's where, where are Abigail's eyes pointing in the sky next? Well, um, we're actually, well, I'm actually looking forward to following up the system um, that was this vampire star system. Uh, we apply for more data and we're going to keep looking at it. We're going to try and look at its orbital motion, try and constrain its orbit. And by doing that, we can actually learn more about the individual stars themselves, not just where they are and how bright they are, but also like their masses. And we can feed that into kind of uh, models which will help us to understand how these crazy interactions happen um, and help constrain exactly uh, what happens to stars that are going to go through those um, through those kind of um, exchanges and interactions in the future. Um, but in terms of what my eye is also looking to, I'm also looking at how these stars are forming. So these massive stars in the universe, I want to know, you know, 
all stars form out of the same regions, you know, these beautiful nebulae of gas and dust. But uh, what is like the, the turning point? When, when do you get a star like a sun? And when do you get a star like, you know, that's going to go supernova and create a black hole? And that's kind of what I'm looking at and trying to work out exactly how these massive stars are forming out, these reservoirs of material. So, yeah, that's what I'm looking at into at the moment. Sounds so fascinating. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Abigail. It was great talking with you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. Now it's Dr. Abigail Frost, astronomer and astrophysicist at KU Leuven in Belgium. One exciting possibility about black holes is that large numbers of miniature black holes may have formed from gravitational wells developed during the first second after the Big Bang. Bang. The smallest of these could have masses as low as one ten thousandth that of a paperclip. That is small. These may have acted as seeds growing into more massive black holes we see today. This idea proposed five decades ago by Stephen Hawking has gone in and out of favor over the intervening years. Like chunky loafers. However, the Gaia mission has found evidence suggesting the presence of large numbers of black holes too small to be the product of deaths of massive stars. Gravitational wave detectors have already seen mergers of black holes and could prove to be a means for astronomers to find evidence of primordial black holes from evidence of their mergers. Now, if the primordial black holes exist, which is far from certain, they could help explain the mysterious dark matter which, it, which seems to which appears throughout the cosmos. The largest of the primordial black holes could have been born in powerful gravitational wells tens of thousands of times more massive than the sun. This intriguing possibility leaves astronomers with a massive problem about black holes. See what I did there? Did they form in the primordial cosmos or were the first black holes created from the collapse of massive stars now, if primordial black holes formed in the first instant of the Big Bang, their presence in the early cosmos would have drawn matter together, forming stars sooner after the Big Bang than would otherwise be expected. The James Webb Space Telescope is designed to see the earliest light in the universe. Using this instrument, astronomers should learn when the first stars in the cosmos came ablaze with light. This finding could help shed light <sighs> on the darkest objects in the universe. Join us next week for the future of the International Space Station with Homer Hickam. We're going to look at the future of the ISS as we talk with this NASA legend. So make sure to join us then. If you enjoyed this episode of The Cosmic Companion, please subscribe, follow, and share. Check out all our episodes at thecosmiccompanion.tv or, you know, pretty much anywhere on social media. You found us this time, right? We'll do it again. I have faith in you. Anyway, clear skies.